Um, let me pray as we come to this new series in 1 Timothy. Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit continues to speak through the words of the Bible. Thank you that in the scriptures you've given us everything we need for salvation and for serving you. And we pray this morning, give us alert and understanding minds. Give us receptive hearts. Give us ready wills that your word will bear much fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So a new series, it's always exciting starting a new series in a new book, the book of 1 Timothy. We've called the series Life in God's Household because this letter from the Apostle Paul is full of instructions for the life of the church, which Paul describes as the household of God. I'm going to make a few opening comments and then we'll get into that passage that Leanne read for us. Firstly, 1 Timothy is an apostolic letter. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says he introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Uh, That word apostle means literally sent one. Uh, It's like an ambassador. And Paul is saying that he's been sent, he's been commissioned for his role by God. He hasn't appointed himself but he is divinely appointed. And therefore, what he writes in this letter comes with all the authority of God. Secondly, it's a personal letter. He says there in chapter 1, verse 2, he's writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Uh, Timothy was Paul's most trusted colleague and co-worker. Paul says in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, I have no one else like him, like Timothy. You know that he's proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. He describes Timothy as his true son in the faith, not his biological son, but his son in the faith. Uh, Paul was Timothy's spiritual mentor. Timothy was Paul's protege. And there was nobody closer to Paul than Timothy. And so this letter, this personal letter, Uh, is a very significant document. It gives us a deep insight into the mind and the heart of this great missionary apostle. Thirdly, 1 Timothy is an open letter. Although it was addressed to Timothy, it was meant to be overheard by the church. So if you've got your Bible, turn to the final verse of 1 Timothy, uh, where Paul gives his final greeting, and he says, Grace be with you all. In other words, he's not intending that only Timothy hear what he's writing. Uh, Maybe it's a bit like someone who writes a letter to the Prime Minister, to Scott Morrison, and then posts it on the internet for everybody to hear their concerns, to hear what they are uh, saying to the PM. Paul's writing to Timothy, but he wants the whole church to hear what he's saying, because what he's saying concerns them all. Fourthly, it is a missionary letter. All Paul's letters are missionary letters written by an evangelist on his missionary journeys, written to individuals and churches who were engaged in the same mission as Paul. Christianity is at heart missionary. Jesus himself was on a mission. That memory verse reminds us, doesn't it? Jesus came into the world with a purpose, with a mission to save sinners. 
And a big part of that mission was accomplished through his death and resurrection. In his life, death, resurrection, Jesus achieved forgiveness of sins, achieved salvation. But the mission of God continues as the good news of that salvation is taken by Jesus' followers out to the ends of the earth. It's a missionary letter. And that ties in, really, with Paul's concern, Paul's purpose in writing. So, again, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to chapter 3. Right in the middle of the letter, Paul tells us why he's writing. Bless you. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 14 and onwards. Let me read those. Paul says to Timothy, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that... That's a key word, linking word, tells us the purpose. So that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Paul is concerned with church conduct, how people conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the the gathered people of the living God. And then he uses this interesting phrase, which doesn't come anywhere else in the New Testament. He says the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. John Stott says in his commentary, the apostles' overriding preoccupation in all three pastoral letters, that's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, his overriding preoccupation is with the truth, that it may be faithfully guarded and handed on. And so throughout this letter, as you read through, Paul refers to the truth, the faith, the the good deposit, the sound doctrine, the gospel. Paul is saying a body of teaching exists. It's revealed by God. And this body of teaching is true, objectively true. And it needs to be held on to. And it needs to be guarded. And it needs to be passed on. Paul says the church is the pillar and foundation of this truth. I think the image we're meant to have in mind here is something like Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square. We've got a picture, hopefully, on the screen. Yeah, there you go. Admiral Nelson being held up by this column for people to see for miles around. The church, says Paul, is the pillar and foundation of the truth, holding up and holding out the truth of the gospel. What is that truth? Well, verse 16 helps. We'll come back to these verses in a couple of months. But it's the truth about Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's the truth about Jesus. Truth about Jesus' life and death, his resurrection, his ascension that we were thinking about last week. Truth about the salvation that Jesus accomplished. And that is why it matters. That is why it matters that the church fulfills its purpose. Because God's mission continues. God's work of salvation continues. Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that remains his beating heart. You see it throughout the letter, maybe particularly at the beginning of chapter 2. Beginning of chapter 2, Paul urges 
God's people to pray, all kinds of prayers. And then in verse 3, he says, This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is why it matters that we learn from this letter, that we learn how we're to conduct ourselves in God's households so that we can fulfill our identity and purpose as a pillar and foundation of the truth, holding up, holding out the truth of the gospel so that people can be saved. Truth matters. Doctrine matters. It matters what we believe. It matters what we teach because people's salvation is at stake. Now, given that... It's really interesting what Paul then addresses in the letter. Because you might think, well, if that's his big concern, then 1 Timothy is going to be a bit like an evangelistic training manual. But actually, Paul addresses a whole host of issues like care for widows and the appointment of leaders and the roles that men and women should have in the church and the attitude that we're to have to wealth and money and more. What we see in 1 Timothy is that the life of the church matters as well. Paul says to Timothy at the end of chapter 4, verse 16, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life and doctrine closely. And I think he could say the same to the whole church. Watch your life and your doctrine. Yes, doctrine matters, teaching matters, the truth matters, and so does your life, your conduct, your behavior. People need to hear the truth, but they also need to see the truth lived out. They need to see how the gospel transforms lives, transforms a community. The life of the church is meant to be attractive. The church is meant to be giving the world a glimpse and a foretaste of life in the kingdom of God. The church, we, this church and all God's church, are his primary mission strategy as we hold out the truth of the gospel and as we live together in line with that truth. Well, let's jump in to the first section of the letter And verses 3 to 11. I've got one big point for these verses. Paul says to Timothy, stop the false teaching so that God's work can advance. Stop the false teaching so that God's work can advance. Let's read from verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Paul finishes his pretty short greeting at the end of verse 2, and then he jumps straight into the pressing matter at hand. He says he's left Timothy in Ephesus with a job, and the job is to command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Why is Paul so concerned about this false teaching? Well, because it hinders God's work from advancing, God's work from going forward. Almost certainly what he means here by God's work is God's ongoing work of salvation. 
the church doing its job of holding out the truth and people responding in faith. Paul says the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, gospel ministry transforms people, transforms people on the inside. Our heart, our conscience are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Guilt and shame are dealt with through the death of Jesus on our behalf. We're forgiven. We're set free from our sins and we live with a sincere faith, trusting in Jesus, no longer trusting in ourselves. This inner transformation bears fruit in genuine love, love for God and love for others. It's in this connection, I think, connection to this work, this ongoing work of salvation, transformation, growing community of love, that Paul talks about the proper use of the law. The false teachers were using the Old Testament to support their false teaching, their heretical teaching. So in verse 7, Paul says, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about and, or what they so confidently affirm. It's quite an indictment, isn't it? They're confidently teaching, but they have no idea what they're talking about. Paul says, verse 8, the problem is not with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is good. The law is good. They're just using it wrongly. And verse 9, he gives an explanation for the proper use of the law. He says, the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. The sins that Paul goes on to list correspond pretty closely to the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you spotted that going through. You can um, check that out later. Now, this isn't the only thing the New Testament teaches about the use of the law. There are a number of different purposes for the Old Testament law. The emphasis here is on the way in which the law exposes our sin and our need of a saviour. It's the same, I think, as what Paul says in Galatians, where he describes the law as a schoolmaster or a guardian whose job it is to point us to Christ. That's the purpose, I think, of the law that Paul has in mind here. The law exposes our sin. It's for the lawless because it, it highlights, it spotlights the ways we've broken the law and fallen short. It exposes our sin and our need and is meant to lead us to faith in Christ. So God's work, true, authentic gospel ministry, involves the truth being taught, bringing conviction of sin and faith in Christ, inner transformation and a community of love. How does that compare to the ministry of the false teachers I said before that they were using the Old Testament, which tells us immediately that it's possible to be thoroughly engaged in discussing the scriptures and to have completely missed the gospel. That's what these false teachers were doing. Verse 4, he says, they've devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, that could be translated as mythical genealogies. 
you know, made-up genealogies. The Old Testament has a number of genealogies, lists of names, descendants, you know, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, etc. But these people, although they were kind of starting with the Old Testament, it seems they were going beyond the Old Testament into made-up genealogies. Apparently, there were a couple of Jewish documents, uh, the Book of Jubilees and the Biblical Antiquities, which do contain stories of these other genealogies, other children of Adam and Eve, who aren't named in the Old Testament, but kind of, this is who they are, and here are some stories about them. And the family of Enoch, ooh. And and it's kind of intriguing. It kind of, um, we're drawn in, aren't we? Because everyone loves a conspiracy theory. Everyone loves the, the idea there might be some secret knowledge that's been suppressed, maybe, and, you know, there's, there's truths here that we can uncover. It may be that these false teachers were trying to trace their own descent from these mythical genealogies so that they could claim some kind of superiority. Look, I'm descended from the fifth child of Adam whoever he or she may be. A kind of spiritual elitism. It seems to me that it's not dissimilar to what Dan Brown claims in the Da Vinci Code. You know, if you haven't read the book, it's a great story, but it's completely wrong. In it, he suggests that Jesus had a child, and there's this secret line of descendants of Jesus down to the present day. It's that kind of speculative conspiracy theory that can be so intriguing. Ooh, I wonder if there's some secret knowledge and holds the key to some higher spiritual experience. We don't know at the end of the day exactly what the content of this teaching was and we don't need to know exactly what it was. The important thing is that it was contrary to the truth of the gospel. You know, in verse 3, where Paul says they're teaching false doctrines, it's literally different doctrines. Teaching that is different to the truth. Again, I think it's similar to Galatians, where Paul says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you and have turned to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. In verse 6, Paul describes their teaching as meaningless talk. Literally, it's empty, vain, powerless. It can't bring about the inner transformation of heart that the gospel brings. Rather, Paul says, this teaching leads to controversial speculations. It's a great phrase, isn't it? Controversial speculations. In place of faith... There's speculation. And in place of love, controversy, division. So I hope you can see how this first little section directly ties into Paul's big concern in the letter of 1 Timothy. If the church is going to do its job, holding up and holding out the truth of the gospel, then it needs to guard against any teaching that would divert it from that purpose. That's what Paul calls Timothy to do, to command certain people not to teach these false doctrines any longer. That charge is picked up again in verse 18. 
Verse 18, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to truth and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. We're not going to go into these verses simply to say holding on to the truth, being faithful in gospel ministry, opposing false teaching is hard. It's a battle, it's a fight. And it's church leaders who bear particular responsibility to fight that battle well. So please pray for Jack and Paul and myself as the pastoral leadership team that we will be faithful, that we'll have the emotional courage to fight. Let me draw out some implications of all this as we finish. There are lots of implications. It'd be great to discuss more. Here are a few. Uh, Firstly, there is such a thing as truth. Objective, absolute truth. The gospel is true, not just true for me, not just true for the people who believe it, true for everyone from every nation, every culture. Philip Jensen says, in the last hundred years, there's been a steady growth in professed uncertainty. It's true that overconfidence in one's opinion is a form of arrogance, yet equally, uncertainty about everything is a form of nonsense. And so while we must be open to changing our mind if new information Uh, is brought to light. While we must hold our beliefs with humility and respect for those who differ, we must hold on to our beliefs and maintain our confidence in the truth and be concerned that what we teach is in line with the truth. Not just so that we can say, well, we're right and they're wrong, so that we can score ourselves some soundness points. You know, hey, I belong to a Bible-teaching church. No, because the truth matters, because salvation matters. There is such a thing as truth. Let's not be taken in by the lies of our postmodern pluralistic culture. Related to that, secondly, love doesn't mean tolerating everything. Again, our society prizes tolerance, doesn't it? Tolerance of everything, apart from the people who say that you can't tolerate everything. The idea of commanding people to stop teaching certain things doesn't seem very tolerant. It's not very open-minded or inclusive. But if truth matters, then love must involve correcting error and opposing falsehood. Now, we don't want to go to the other extreme. We don't want to be a church where we close down discussion, where no one's allowed to ask any questions, where you're not allowed to raise an alternative view. But we do need to have, I think, a healthy guardedness, a recognition of the danger of teaching that denies or distorts or distracts from the gospel. We're celebrating mothers today, celebrating uh, the love that mothers have in their families. And this is my one little reference to Mother's Day. Um, 
If a mother loves their family, it doesn't mean that they let anything go, does it? It doesn't mean that they tolerate everything. It means actually that they correct their kids at times. It means they stop children from doing things that are going to be harmful to others. So here, love doesn't mean tolerating everything. That, that'll be uncomfortable because the perception of our, our Western secular society is that we must tolerate everything. It'll be uncomfortable, but it's what we're called to do. Thirdly, beware novel teaching. As I said uh, earlier, everyone loves a bit of a conspiracy theory. There's something intriguing about the idea of secret knowledge, some new insights. There's something attractive about that, especially if it's affirmed confidently, as Paul says these teachers are doing, end of verse 7. And especially if it seems to be based in the Bible. You know, they, they get their Bibles out and they start reading and you think, oh, they must be a true teacher of the law. No, says Paul, they have no idea what they're talking about. And so we need to weigh all teaching against the standard of gospel truth and the fruit of faith and love. Does this teaching bring faith in people, faith in Christ? Does it grow love or does it lead to speculation and controversy? So let me encourage you to, to never tire of hearing the old truths of the gospel. Never tire of hear, hearing the old, old story again because that's what we need. Much of what we do on a Sunday, much of what we do in our own personal devotions, it seems to me, is reminding ourselves daily, weekly, reminding ourselves of the age-old truths of the gospel, that Jesus came to save sinners, that he lived the perfect life that we could never live for us, and he died the death that we deserve to die in our place, and he rose again in glory and ascended to the right hand of the Father, blazing a trail for us to follow. Never tire of hearing the truths of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter and we pray in the coming weeks that you would teach us great things, that you would uh, shape our thinking about the church, the household of God, the gathered people of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Help us to see who we are and who you call us to be, what you call us to do, holding up and holding out the truth of the gospel so that people can be saved. Help us to be a faithful church, growing in faith and love. For your glory's sake. Amen.